The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. Nice to see everybody here today. As we get near the end of the month, some of you know I often, or somebody here usually mentions about this really beautiful practice we've been doing here at Common Ground for 25 years. And uh, it's really important not to hear it as a pitch, but just as a practice to take into our lives, this circle of giving and receiving. And of course, practically the organization runs on this, thrives really on this principle we don't talk about money much, and uh, because we want people when they come to the center, no matter what the program might be, residential retreats or the weekly practice groups like we have now, intro classes, whatever it might be, yoga classes, we want people to receive all the programs as a free gift. And for those of you who've been around, you know it isn't easy actually because we're suspicious of free gifts, like, okay, what's really going on here? But of course, it's a free gift because of all the people who've contributed and volunteers and you know everything that's happened before allows, for example, the Sunday morning group this morning to be offered freely with no strings attached. And then we have to let it in, like, well, that's really sweet that it's offered as a free gift. And then at, at any point when your heart is naturally appropriately moved to give back, whether it's just giving your appreciation, just your good wishes for the community, or give money, or volunteer your time, or whatever it might be, then let that movement move, right? Let it move unrestrictedly in a way that makes sense in your life. And because nobody's telling you how it should look, then it's really up to each person to sort of notice if it feels off because you're holding back and you're reinforcing a sense of stinginess or you're overdoing it and you want someone to recognize that you're the best giver in the world or something like that. And this is how we come into balance in this circle of giving and receiving. And it's just, of course, not just about your relationship to common ground. It's about your relationship to your kids and your partners and your communities that you're part of. Even your even our jobs, we have to have this attitude if we really want to be happy. Even if we have a contract where, you know, it's like a legal document that defines how we're going to interact. In our heart, we can show up to the contract in a way that's generous. Like, well, I'm going to put my heart into this activity. Even though I have a contract, I'm going to do this, they're going to pay me that. The spirit underneath, not that you'd even have to say it out loud to the people involved, but I'm, no, I'm, I'm giving because it feels good to give freely. And then if they follow through at their end of the contract and pay me, I'll receive that freely, wholeheartedly, and use it to you know, take care of my livelihood. So we invite you know, the leadership here, we invite everyone to participate here at Common Ground in the circle of giving and receiving. And of course, we have more information on the website. There's a sheet of paper out by the donation bowls many ways for people to engage this. So it's good if you're going to be around to sort of study up so that naturally as the months go by, you'll find a way that makes you happy to be part of the Common Ground community. 
to receive more and more freely, less neurotically, like what's, you know, what's really going on here, and give back in a way that makes you happy. And that's really what we want. And for 25 years now, it's really worked for us as a, you know, as a normal, ordinary nonprofit, middle-sized maybe now nonprofit, we've been able to thrive. We own our building. Of course, we have lots of expenses and we have paid staff and we have a retreat property in Wisconsin that we're developing slowly. It's really a farm that we're developing into a retreat property. But, you know, it's just built up slowly because of, you know, it's not like one big giver or donor. It's really just a lot of people finding a way to be in the circle of giving and receiving in a way that makes sense in their lives. So just check with the office or check with me if you have any questions about that. And so we're moving on. Some of you have been reading along in this wonderful complimentary text that came out a couple years ago. Guy Armstrong, he's a West Coast teacher. He also teaches at Insight Meditation Center in Massachusetts, but mostly lives and teaches out at Spirit Rock, north of San Francisco, wonderful meditation retreat center out there. And he wrote a book called Emptiness, um, I think a practical guide for meditators, something like that is the subtitle. And for those who are reading along, we're in this nearing the last section of the book on the nature of awareness, chapter 17. And really looking, and it's very appropriate for us to just have a sense of the mystery of the mind. I mean, we use that word all the time, you know, my mind, my heart. But what do we actually mean about that thing, my mind, my heart? I mean, normally when we talk about the mind, we talk about the heart, we talk about mindfulness, we talk about awareness, we talk about consciousness, we talk about, you know, the different qualities of the mind, like my mind's really expansive or happy, or my mind's really heavy and sad. Right? So we, this is how we talk about the mind. But most of those words that I've just named, you know, consciousness and the different qualities, we're often talking about particular activities, you know, that the mind is knowing a particular object, or the mind is, you know, this movement of happiness is expressing itself in the mind, or kindness, or anger. Right? These different, you could say, colorings of the mind, or attributes of the mind. And I guess the, you know, the main point as we move into this next section in Guy Armstrong's book, or this next section of the Buddhist teachings, you know, the Buddha doesn't really have a word exactly for awareness. He has actually lots of words that refer to different aspects of the mind, sort of some of the words that I've just mentioned, like vijnana, which is consciousness, and um, citta, which are, is a word that points to the different qualities of the mind, like his expansive mind or contracted mind, and sati, which is mindfulness, which is really more technically, I mean, we use mindfulness almost as a generic term to talk about our this path of awakening, right? It's a path of mindfulness because it's such an important feature in the path but technically it's a very specific thing mindfulness it's about remembering what's important to remember remembering to recognize the present moment so it's really mindfulness the term sati really refers to the part of the mind so like a very particular muscle like you could say a reflective muscle that oh yeah 
this is being known. So the mind is doing this very particular thing. It's remembering right now, like you can play with it right now, it's remembering to recognize, oh yeah, this is being known. Because right? we're conscious a lot of the day, but we're not mindful. We're not aware that we're aware. We're not aware that we're conscious, right? So I can drive home, and I'm conscious in the sense that I'm sensitive to what I'm seeing and touching and all of that, but I'm not aware that I'm aware. That's the mindfulness, because there's the mind is doing this very specific thing. It's remembering to notice, remembering to recognize, oh yeah, it's like this now. So that's why sometimes I'll call that a reflective awareness or re- reflective knowing. And that's why the word sati is often related to the word memory or remembering. And it's specifically to remember to recognize the present moment. I mean, it's always the present moment. It's never, ever You've never experienced anything but the present moment, but there have been many, 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 many moments when the mind wasn't recognizing that this is the present moment. Whenever we're lost in thought, there's no part of the mind recognizing I'm lost in thought. That's why we call it lost thought. And in a way, we're saying specifically, I'm not aware that this is happening when we're lost in thought or absorbed in anything, reading a novel, watching a movie, be playing with the kids. In a lot of trance states, a lot of things we normally considered consider a kind of meditative moment, it's not actually that we're mindful. We're just lost, we're absorbed in a relatively wholesome place. Right? Like those sort of semi dream states, you know, we're kind of in that tranquil little spot. It's peaceful, but we kind of lose that reflective awareness. So remember, there are a lot of relatively pleasant resting states, calm states for the mind that aren't mindful. The thing that makes mindful so potent, because of that reflective awareness, the mind is really primed for learning. And one of the things the mind really learns about ultimately you could say the most important thing that the mind learns about with this reflective knowing is it learns about the nature of the mind itself. And that's kind of where we're going toward the end of this book and the more refined teachings on emptiness. And you can use the kind of guided meditation that I did today, you know, where you start with hearing. You're just resting in the experience of hearing. And then just naturally notice that all of this hearing that's happening, the objects that are being known, so the sound that's being heard, where's that happening? What's happening here? So we're getting a sense of the space of the mind. How do we know the space of the mind? Well, we don't really, can't know it directly. We know it's here because sounds are being heard here. So it's something that's being intuitive. And not only are sounds being heard in the present moment, but sensations are being felt and thoughts are being seen. And so because of this activity of knowing, there's a sense of a space where knowing is happening. We call that the present moment. And the interesting thing about the present moment 
is, you know, this is this provocative word I've been talking about for probably eight months now, I think since August or September. We use this provocative word, the mind is empty. It's There's knowing, right? Knowing is happening, but it's empty. We don't find the knower, we just find knowing happening. So this is one of the things we're contemplating. You know, the reason we abide, we practice resting in the present moment, where hearing is being known and sensations are being felt, thoughts are being noticed, mental images coming and going, emotions coming and going. So there's this real trust of the sensitivity of the mind. Hearing, sensitive to hearing, sensitive to the sensations in the body, sensitive to the activity of thought and emotion, mental images coming and going, is that it it allows for this intuitive sense of the space of the present moment, the space of the mind, the space of the of awareness. So we use these different phrases synonymously. Space of the mind, space of the present moment, and it's the space of freedom. Right? Because we're really the with these instructions we're pointing to a mind that's abiding, sensitive, intimate, not distant, not distracted, not lost in thought, right? Aware. So we're, that mindfulness is there. There's a very clear sense of this is being known, this is here and now, this is the mind not forgetting that this is being known, right? So there's a real sense of this remembering of mindfulness but also of not grasping. So this is what we discover, like what I said earlier, we're using this reflective awareness that we call mindfulness, where the mind is remembering, oh yeah, this is being known, this is being known, this is being known, with some continuity, remembering the present moment. And then we're intuiting something about the mind, that there's knowing, but the mind is empty of an agent, a somebody, doing the knowing that all we can ever say or know about the mind is that knowing is happening. Knowing of sound, knowing of thought, knowing of emotion, knowing of sight, knowing of sensation. Now, that statement that the mind is luminous in the sense that things are being known, there's knowing happening, right? and that there's nothing else we say can say about the mind, that sounds sort of philosophical. Well, that's sort of interesting philosophically. But the more we learn to abide, so as a human being with a body and a mind, a life, relationships, things we've got to do, things we're embarrassed that we have done, you know, all of that baggage that comes with being a human being, if we train the mind to more and more trust that space of the mind that is knowing sound and sight and thought and emotion and sensation. No breaks, no imposition of judgment, no trying to become somebody or wishing we hadn't become somebody. If that's there, it's just something being known. right? So it's, we're letting go of the agenda of doing or becoming somebody and we're abiding 
you could say in the nature of the mind, which is luminous, or you could say sensitive, naturally to these things, right? You don't have to try right now. Do you have to, is there an agent somewhere in you that has to try, make an effort to hear my voice? No. You can, in fact, the more you relax, the better you're going to hear my voice. And the better the part of the mind that comprehends what I'm saying is going to comprehend what I'm saying. If you sort of feel like you have to make a muscular effort to hear me or comprehend or see me with your eyes or feel your body, the more you're distracting yourself from the sensitivity that's just built in, you could say, to the nature of the mind. So there's part of the mind that is more obvious, which is it's luminous or sensitive. There's knowing, right? And that knowing is really nature because there's you don't find somebody doing the knowing. I mean, I know we say that, like, oh, I, I was knowing this, I was knowing that, but we don't actually find that in your direct subjective experience. You don't find the Mark or the Mary or the you know, Tamika behind who's doing the knowing. All you find is knowing. And if you think there's a knower back there, that's a thought that can be known. Oh yeah, there's a knower back there. Right? That's a thought. Being known. And so we say the mind is luminous, it's sensitive, and it's empty. And the more that that's realized, the luminous, sensitive part of the mind, that's nature, that luminosity, that sensitivity, is inherent. You don't, nobody does it. Right? And that it's empty of anything else, then something else starts to come online in the heart and mind or in this activity we call me, which is, and I love how they say it in some of the Tibetan Buddhist traditions, this unstoppable compassionate action. Because that's the non-fear. That's the non-conceit the absence of neurotic activity, the more that the mind understands the nature of the mind, that it's luminous, that I don't have to do the knowing, and that there's nothing but the knowing, then in a way the personality just starts to express that freedom. And because what that activity has less and less fear, less and less entangled with craving, then that activity we call the mind or this life expresses itself in a more generous, connected, kind way. It starts to act more from the depth as opposed to being strategic and manipulative and afraid to get outside of the boxes that we've been born into because of culture. You know, all the fear around difference, all the sort of systemic hate and judgment and trappings of gender and sexism and all this kind of stuff that oppresses us all and the ways that we oppress others, it's not like we can instantaneously be free of that conditioning, but we can start to work with it more and more skillfully because the mind isn't afraid. It isn't sort of grounded in fear. It's grounded instead more and more in emptiness, which is luminous, 
intimate, sensitive, empty of an agent that needs to be protected, that needs to win, that needs to be good or needs to be bad, depending on our programming. Because some of us have programming that we're no good. And some of us have programs that we're programming that we're better than. And some of us have programming that I think I'm the same as. But the mind isn't trapped by any of that programming. And so our participation is like you we've all experienced at times when we were playing and we lost a sense of boundaries and it was just playing and the delighting and the freedom of that activity where it isn't about getting somewhere or becoming somebody or fixing something, right? This is why we like watching children, not that they're always there in that space, but in moments more likely than adults probably, they're they're in that space where their heart, mind isn't projecting, you know, these patterns of fear and greed that arise out of a strong sense of self, self self-centeredness. So this practice of understanding the mind requires a stable, mindful awareness, this reflective awareness. And this, it's sometimes called big sky meditation. It's a nice way to do it, where we just use hearing and then include sensations, include the activity of thought and emotion. But we're really more and more trusting the space, like a vast sky in which that activity of thought and activity of sensation, activity of sound is doing what it will do. But we're learning to trust that there is a space to, in a sense, you know that game sometimes teenagers play where their friends are behind you and you're supposed to fall back, you know, knowing that they're going to catch you. It's a little bit like that where we're learning just to, like, I don't have to be an ordinary human being who has to become somebody or do something or fix something. In the safety of my meditation practice, in the safety of my 30 minutes sitting in the quiet space of some room at home, sitting in a comfortable way, I can practice resting in the space of awareness with your eyes open even, right? Seeing, hearing, sensing the sensations, noticing the thoughts, and noticing that all of that can be trusted to just come and go as it will. Another, in a way, more like to operationalize it or to sort of help get a sense, we're resting in the non-grasping. We're resting in the non-attachment. So if you want to give it a more specific place, you know, the refuge is resting in non-attachment, resting in letting go, resting in letting be, where everything has permission. Now the reason we sit in a safe place in a comfortable way for a length of time that makes sense in our day is that it's not easy to do this because so much of our conditioning, even as human beings, is really on that level of an animal wanting to survive. 
So there's a lot of fear and greed that's just been conditioned in through culture and just through our genetic program, programming. So it's important. That's why people find it sometimes, at least, easier to practice in community or at a place like Common Ground than it is at home. You know, and people who do able to, who are able to practice at home, maybe you've created a little safe corner in one room that's a little less cluttered. You might even have some objects in that space, a particular chair, a particular cushion near a nice window or a plant or. You might, for some people with a more devotional personality, you might even create an altar that makes sense for you, that kind of has symbols that remind you, basically, that it's, it's safe to be a human being, right? It's safe to relax. It's safe to be wide open. It's safe to let things move. It's safe to feel what I feel. It's safe to rest in awareness or this empty space of knowing. And to realize this deeper level of freedom and safety. You know, basically not having to have the world on our shoulders. Like those of you with kids, it's sort of an amazing setup. I don't have children. And, uh, you know, especially as I grow older, because as they're young, of course, especially infants, there's this very specific responsibility. You, they're totally, completely dependent on the caregiver, the parent. But then they grow up, right? And they're more and more independent. You know, for a while, you're just sort of a police person making sure they get it, you know, in the house by a certain time and, you know, whatever. Don't drink and drive or whatever it might be. And then... Every once in a long while you're just an advisor or someone, you know, to give a pep talk. And if you're lucky, right? And so there's this sense of, in all places in life, with our partners, with our children, with our bodies, with our communities, and the, the beauty in our communities, and the injustice and terror and yeah, oppression in our communities. It's like there's a place where to really show up, we have to really let go. Like if we if we own it in a personal way, we can't show up. We can't respond. We can't be skillful. And this is not just true, like the example of children, you know, when they're 35 or 40 years old. But it's even when they're five or three or two, you know, we have to start letting them wander into the room without us following them. You know, we still, we listen, you know, (laughs) making sure they're not messing with something they shouldn't be messing with. But we start loosening that ownership, that sense of ownership. And so we know this teaching all along of letting go, whether you learned it through being a parent or you learned it through the aging process and realizing that you can't control what's happening in your body or you learned it through social groups where you can't control social dynamics and who likes who and who's attracted to who. That these 
worldly or these natural dynamics are nature. Nobody's in charge. They will play out according to causes and conditions. A lot of us may not want politics or the world to be the way, the way that it is right now. But is it a mistake? You know, or is I, the better way to say that is, is thinking that it's a mistake skillful? Right? So like if the world is imperfect, which certainly seems that way, but maybe it's perfectly imperfect. You know, or maybe it's perfectly safe to be intimate with the messiness. Maybe it's perfectly safe to be intimate with the messiness because it's what we have to do. And distancing ourselves doesn't mean we stop taking care of ourselves and taking breaks and taking a rest. But we want to explore like in the messy places in our immediate families and the messy places in our wider society, we want to explore showing up and feeling. And this teaching really helps that engagement. Because otherwise it feels like the purpose of life is for the self to make it through unscathed. But it never, it's like that was a delusion, an illusion from the beginning. Nobody makes it through unscathed. So when that gets teased out through this mindful reflection, you can just, even on an intellectual level, you can get a sense how our participation will become more and more fearless with our families, with our friends, with the wider world. And I think it's so important that we somehow, even on an intellectual level, connect this more subtle spiritual work of waking up to the nature of the mind with this more gross, and I don't mean gross in a negative way, this more worldly work of showing up to our responsibilities, to the messiness and the injustice and the beauty in the world that we want to participate in. We want to appreciate the beauty and we want to take responsibility for the mess. Even if it can't be fixed, we want to lean in. We want to feel into it. We want to participate because it's healing to show up and it's deadening to live in a way that, you know, with some view that I don't belong in this world because it's so wrong or it's so messy that the appropriate stance for me is to not to pretend I'm not here when I'm here. I mean, that's what we do. This is sort of the tendency in intimate relationships when they stop working well. We start to pretend, even though we sleep with the person, you know, we share money with the person, we maybe share kids with the person, but we start imagining that we're not in relationship with the person, which is total delusion, right? It's like that's the way we're relating, as if we're not there. That's our relationship, you know? Our strategy is I'm in relationship, pretending I'm not in relationship. And how does that work? Well, most of us have had tastes of how that works. Not very well, right? It's a kind of deadening way to be in relationship. And this is like, same with our jobs, like going to work without really being intimate, without really being there. 
as if that's a strategy for life. Like, I, I don't know if it was Tony Packer or one of our wonderful Dharma teachers, you know, wonderful matriarchs in Western Dharma, said something like, I think it was her, but it could have been another teacher, nobody consciously chooses to be numb. You know, in all the little and big ways we've become numb in life, it's because we've unconsciously seen that as a useful strategy. But when we're really sensitive of what that is, to like choose to be not there when we're there, it's like nobody does that consciously because it doesn't work. You know, and this is why there's so much you know, unseen rage and depression, sadness, unresolved grief, unresolved trauma is because we're moving through life with various strategies of cutting ourselves off from life. And this practice of using the mind, awareness, to rest, to study the nature of the mind, to begin to wake up to the emptiness, the nature of the mind, is all about how to be engaged how to show up in all the ordinary and extraordinary moments of our life. So I'll leave it here so there's time for a few comments, maybe from your own life. You'd like to share a few reflections of what you've been learning with your own practice or questions you might have before we invite the children in. Who would like to begin? Thoughts that you have? What comes to mind? Yeah, please start us off right over here. My name's Sarah. Comment slash question. I, I um I really appreciate hearing what you're saying about sort of the connection between uh, connecting with the inner mind and the empty space, and then being in the world, which is certainly something I experience in my practice. That it helps, and that's why I keep doing it. And yet, as I start to delve more into trying to take the you know 20 minutes practice and then off the mat. I feel like, you know, what is that? I feel a resistance to the idea of being mindful all the time, that being mindful all the time would mean not acting, like the way I don't scratch an itch while I'm meditating. Then should I not interfere in or engage with trying to change something in the world? So, yeah. question in yeah, there Yeah, no, somewhere? it's a really good point, Sarah. And so if you didn't hear, just that in, in one particular point, especially about you know, when we sit, we sit in a place that's seemingly removed from a lot of the chaos and a lot of what needs addressing in the world, right? Even coming to a place like common ground. And that we sit still can really make it seem that the approach to, you know, the way to happiness is to sort of be removed or to be still or to just let the world happen on its own. But it's actually just a training mechanism, Right? It's a skillful means for studying the mind. It is harder in real time to be aware. That's why we practice in kindergarten. And then we have our 16 hours or 18 hours for the rest of the day where we're practicing, you know, in high school and college and postgraduate, right? Because all of that stuff out in the world is more challenging but we're getting a little momentum in the relative quiet of our sitting space at home or here, a place like Common Ground, where the conditions are more more suitable, quiet, we can hold the body still. And then we can learn to trust that quiet, empty space of awareness 
where things are coming and going, being known. And then you'll find like, and then when you walk to your car or when you start driving or you're at work or whatever it is you're doing, taking care of the kids, you can find that that empty space of awareness, where would it go? It's still there. It's a little harder to keep remembering it with, with a continuity because the particular events of the moment draw the attention so we're having moments of being lost in the particular problem. But the more you do the practice, you'll notice this background of wisdom. Or you could say, it's more provocative to say it this way, background of emptiness. right? Like it's just nature happening, not to anybody. It's just nature happening. But seeing it in that empty way perfects the feedback mechanism. So that's why that total engagement really works. It's not that our action is going to be perfect, but the learning, in a sense, will be perfect. We won't be perfect initially as we engage our kids, engage our lover, engage the world, society. But because we're not, there isn't this overlay of me trying to do it right, there's this perfect setup for learning. Because the awareness is there knowing this is being known. It's like this now. And if the activity of the mind and body, because the personality is like let loose, right? Because we're not projecting as somebody who's the parent of our personality, right? Instead, we're learning to abide in the empty, kind, non-judging presence, right? That's already there. So initially that feels like something I'm doing as a practitioner, but the more we do it, the more it's just the habit of the mind. And you won't even have to be the person that's abiding in emptiness or abiding in awareness. And in that space, as you live your life and the personality is doing what it does because of habit, but now there's an awareness like a mirror that knows what the personality is doing. And if it's not helping, that's being reflected back to what we call the mind, the mind stream. Right? It makes an impression on that activity of the mind as a natural system without anybody in charge of it. And that's not philosophy. We just see that that's the way it is. We don't make that up. We're, trying not to, we're not imposing some Buddhist idea on the mind. We're studying the mind with awareness and we're realizing little by little the nature of the mind. And it changes everything. It really does. Initially, we have to take the the initial work of willingness to sit down and do the practice comes from faith because we don't know the results until you do it. You got to put some time into developing the continuity of mindful awareness before you start to have this intuitive sense of how powerful it is in changing one's life. Yeah, thanks, Sarah, for bringing that up. Great. Take care, everybody. Thanks for coming. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.